Hello, friends. How's it going? I'm Chase Jarvis. I want to welcome you to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. This show is where I sit down with the world's top creators, entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and I unpack their brains with the goal of helping you live your dreams in career, in hobby, and in life. My guest today is a best-selling author. He's a researcher. He's a writer. He taps into one of my favorite topics, which is maximizing human performance. My guest is Stephen Kotler. Mr. Stephen Kotler is an entrepreneur, a writer. I really know his work as a writer, but there is some entrepreneurial stuff, as there is for all of us creators, in his world. He writes about uh, human performance, among other things. It was one of the things that I was fascinated by early in my creative career, how to tap into that. It sort of segued out of my career in sports. And Stephen was one of the first people that I had seen who was sewing those two things together. His work has appeared in every place you can possibly think of. New York Times, Ford, Wired, Time Magazine, you name it. He's even been nominated for a Pulitzer for his book, A Small Furry Prayer. I wanted to have Stephen on the show because of his unique focus and especially his most recent book called Stealing Fire. It's around understanding peak human performance. And and the difference between this book and the other books that you've read is this, it takes all the abstraction, like what would it be like if, and this book, it underscores the actual potential that you right now, wherever you are, have to tap into the mechanisms that make people like Navy SEALs, the top entrepreneurs, the world's best athletes. You can have access to the same part of your brain that they have been coached into tapping into. So parts of this episode are a bit heady. I'm not going to lie to you. And the thing that I want you to focus on is that if you just sink into it, because we get there at the end of every one of these little complicated ways of thinking about human performance is a very simple way to apply it to you. We do, we do geek out a little bit, but what's important is that you remember the buzzwords are not the concept. The concept are, is the system for this stuff, the system for unlocking your potential. I've seen a lot of people trying to cobble stuff together on their own by mimicking the habits of other folks or tapping into one or two things online and trying to... That's not what this is about. This is about a cohesive system that will help you understand the framework for maximizing your own potential. And that's the goal of the show, right? Is giving giving you uber practical, actionable stuff that you can put into practice today. And this episode delivers on that. We also get into one of Steven's signature themes called flow. I have appeared in several videos on the internet about creative flow. And those videos were a product of a project I was working on with Steven. That's the optimum state of consciousness where we feel and perform our best. We talk about mindfulness, why it's super important part of this framework that Steven has put together. Steven, uh, like my previous guests, including Tim Ferriss, uh, Lewis Howes, folks, these these people are all performing some element of mindfulness. That was the one theme in Tim Ferriss's book, Tools of Titans. Across 200 people he interviewed, Stephen, taps, Stephen talks about why tapping into that part of you is critical for, um, for making you the best you can be. The implications of all this stuff, specifically for creatives, what Stephen has learned from studying CEOs, Navy SEALs, all of the things that I pointed out just a second ago, how applicable this is to creators. That's the point that I want you to take away from this whole conversation. With that, I'm going to get into the show, but before we do, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best online platform for creative education with more than 10,000 hours of classes taught by the world's top experts, including a lot of the people who have appeared on this show. Folks like Tim Ferriss, Ramit Sethi, Joe McNally, Ryan Holiday, Debbie Milliman, and so many others. In short, what you need to know is it's where the best folks, the doers, go to teach. Pulitzer Prize winners, Grammy Award winners, best-selling authors, and game-changing entrepreneurs like Mark Cuban and Richard Branson. You get the picture. And right now you might be saying, wait a minute, aren't you the founder and CEO of Creative Live? Well, yes, it is. And Creative Live's resources is what makes this show possible. If you're curious at all, Creative Live has classes in photography, design, business, music, and best of all, they have lots of live streaming education channels playing 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can explore the catalog that way or just buy something 
if you see something that you love. More than 10,000 hours, 1,500 classes, again, from the world's top experts. So if you want to get your learn on, whether your goal is to earn a living or just make a life around your passions, uh, improve your craft, either way, head over to Creative Live or search for Creative Live in the App Store because their iOS app is very good, if I say so myself. With that, let's get into the show. Welcome to the show, my man. Jarvis. Yes. Good to be with you. Long time coming. Yeah, we've been Long talking time. about this for a while. We have been talking about this for a while. You've done some books. I got to be a part of one of your projects. You did. We have so many mutual friends in, in common, and you study something I am fascinated about. I have been fascinated since I was a wee pup, and I was wondering if, as just an intro to the show, for anyone who's not familiar with you or your work, give them the background. Like, what's... Where, you know, why, how did you get here? Where do you, you're sitting on the, the, the chair here. How'd you get here? In the door and <laughs> across the carpet. You have a lifetime of wisdom. First of all, you called yourself a journalist. Well, I, I started out as a journalist. Yeah. I did. Okay, but I, I, I mean, we've actually been started out for like as a 10 poet, years. But, you know, that's, a, that's I, my degree, my undergraduate degree is in poetry, which did is not even weirder. Yeah. So we've been friends for like 10 years, but I, 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 I knew you had journalism in your background, but you called yourself a journalist. Is that what you call yourself now? Are you calling no, yourself a I mean, I, author? You know, I'm a guy who puts words together in a straight line. Okay. I, like, I, you know, I write fiction, I write nonfiction. I've been a journalist for 20 years, but it's all. It's, it's, all, it's all my chance to like rearrange words because that makes me happy. And what you've been focused on for the last decade or so in particular is? I, well, I, I, let's back it up. Okay. I, so sure, I think sure. over the whole course of the career, there's been one question which I've focused on, which is what does it take to do the impossible? Right? That's been my fundamental question. And I think since I was like nine or ten, and I tell you the story of where that came from. I but love it. No, do it. Literally, it's a true story. So I'm nine years old, ten years old, nine years old. My brother, baby brother, seven years old, eight years old, I must have been 10, he must have been, comes in the house, I'm talking to my mom in the kitchen, he's got a red sponge ball, and he takes the red sponge ball, and he takes it from this hand and puts it in this hand, and it vanishes. And I think two things, because it looked like he vanished the ball. I think yeah. one, holy crap, now I gotta compete with this for mom's attention, right? Like I got a problem, yeah. right? This is, like, <laughs> we gotta work this out. <laughs> it's not gonna happen. Number two, I knew my brother wasn't magic, right? Like, so at that moment in time, I went, oh, wait a minute. There's something behind the impossible. Like, there's a, there's a skill set there, right? And I was interested in that. And I don't think it ever went away, right? So I spent most of my life, and obviously this led me to my work at the Flow Genome Project, where I'm director of research and co-founder, and we study flow states or runner's high or being in the zone, whatever, you know, take your pick, those moments of kind of total focus where you get so drilled down on the task at hand, yes. everything else vanishes, right? Those are the best. And performance in those states goes through the roof. So I'm interested in those states. I'm interested in the neurobiology of them, where do they come from, and mostly how do we get more of them, right? What are the triggers? What are the preconditions? And, you know, what I found over 30 years of studying the impossible is any time you see the impossible done, and you see a lot of other things happening along the way, but it doesn't matter what domain, whether it's, you know, Tomorrowland, the innovators I wrote about who turned science fiction into science fact, like the guys who dreamed up tomorrow, or the guys I wrote about Peter in abundance who were trying to tackle impossible challenges, poverty, energy scarcity, healthcare, or space. Space. Yes. Right. <clears throat> or, you know, Stealing Fire, which is a, a much more mainstream book where we're looking at, you know, US Navy SEALs and tech companies like Google and we're saying what, you know, what's the commonality here and, and over and over and over, which is the ability to shift out of normal consciousness and into these heightened states of consciousness All for right. performance. I'm gonna put a pin in that and I wanna say it one more time. So you've spent the last how many years <coughs> did you say well, you started when you were nine, but the last certainly Professionally? Yeah. 27-ish years, yeah. I think this, is, right. this is how you make a career doing awesome shit, is find the thing that interests you so much, the thing that you're fascinated by, and build a living and a life writing and thinking about it. And it's that altered state, the ability to unlock the impossible as a replicable, like analyzing the things that the best shit in the world happens when you're in this state, what does that state look like, and how can we get there more often? Is that a fair that's summary? A, that's a perfect summary, yeah. All right, so um, I'm gonna tell a small story to then kick yeah, it back please. to your word. So um, my... This isn't the one with the purple underwear. No, no, paper. it's not the one with the purple okay. underwear. Sorry, we've been friends for too long for this <laughs> broadcast. Um, the 
I grew up playing soccer mm -hmm. and went to college on a soccer scholarship. And it was somewhere in junior high, early high school, where, um, oh, it was Olympic development. They started developing kids for the Olympics, smaller, little, like they're called the Olympic development teams. And my coach for one of these ODP teams um, started talking about sports psychology. And Which, by the way, it. might have been the very first, like right when you were young, yeah. that's probably when sports psychology was brand new, yeah. right? And I was, I was, I liked to read, and I was given a book. And there wasn't, no one could articulate it at that level, because it was still was Olympic development, but I'll cut to the chase. I was given a book, I was massively intrigued, I started doing everything I could on my own, and I begged my parents, who we were very middle class, lower middle class, I mean, I had upside down Nikes and Adidas with four stripes, <laughs> and to help me find a way to see a professional, uh, someone who could help me with this. And I saw one person one time, and they gave me a handful of tools, and I used those mental tools to what I considered to do something that was impossible, which was to see the future, to know how many goals I was gonna score in the next season, and ultimately to land a soccer scholarship at the top soccer school in the country. And I have been hooked, that was when I was probably um, you know, 15, 16, and I have been fascinated, obsessed with that, the psychology around human performance and what's possible since then. Enter you into my life, and I don't remember how we got connected. I really Chris don't. Gerard. It was Gerard, that's right, former manager. Gerard, what's up? I'm sure you're gonna listen to this. Um, and it was like you, you had already discovered and written about <coughs> all of the things that I was obsessed about as a young person. Starting, I think the first book that I really went deep with of yours was Superman. Rise of Superman, you call it Rise, I call it Superman. Um, so can you orient our audience? And again, the people who are listening here, aspiring creatives, entrepreneurs, people who are seeking to change or transform their life. So this is just, folks, this is very potent medicine that you're gonna hear from Stephen here today. So take notes, pick up some of these books, um, but orient the audience around. What happened in Rise? Yeah. Okay. Um, Rise emerged out of uh, looking at action sport athletes. So in the late 90s, in the 90s, two things started to happen in action sports. The first is that we started to see leaps and bounds. You were there to document it, yep. but we started to see leaps and round, crazy progress, right? Like I broke a lot of bones along the way because I wasn't a professional athlete and I was chasing professional athletes around mountains. What would happen is I'd be hanging out, snap this or that, have to take three to four months off. When I came back, stuff that was talked about as totally impossible, never gonna get done four months before I broke my ankle or whatever, was not just being done when I got back, it was being iterated upon. So I started, you know, as I often do, wanting to put some numbers around it. I was, mm -hmm. you know, trying to quantify it and measure it and how, what are we really looking at? Is this, and I started to realize we were looking at nearly exponential growth in ultimate human performance. And ultimate human performance is design, defined as performance with being your best when it matters most, right? Yes. In their case, being your was, best when it matters most. Got that. In their case, it was you know being the best with often when their lives were on the line, yeah. right? And you know just a couple examples in and you know this first one probably firsthand. In 1992, biggest gap jump anybody ever cleared on a snowboard was the Baker Road Gap yeah. in Washington, yes. right? And it's 40 feet end to end, which is big. It's yeah. two buses, right? In, 19, in 2006, Travis Rice cleared a gap that was 260-some feet long, right? That is insane. Surfing went from the biggest wave anybody had ever surfed from 400 AD until 1996 is 25 feet. And today, we're pushing to waves that are 100 feet tall, right? Like, that's incredible kinds of progress. So the question was, where the hell is it coming from, right? And what we realized is that what unified all these audiences, all these athletes, like wherever we see this, is flow. They were tapping into this state of flow. And the good news at this point is neuroscience had sort of progressed enough over the past 10 years, right? This, another science that's moving exponentially is being driven by Moore's law. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, we could look under the hood. We could, you know, flow's been around forever. We've known it's been linked to improve performance since the 1870s scientifically, right? That was where the first research was done. But it was a mystery, like where the hell was it coming from? What was the mechanism? And 
once we figured out the mechanism, what we did at the Flow Genome Project, what I was involved in, is we took these athletes yep. and we took all this neuroscience and we worked backwards and said, okay, what are the triggers? And that's, you know, so RISE was about kind of the neurobiology of where is this state coming from? How is it helping these athletes, you know, achieve the impossible? Um, how, you know, how, what's triggering it and how can we bridge the gap from the extreme to the mainstream, right? Take it yeah. out of these extreme athletes and put it more into our lives. All right. So I think in, in, embedded in what you just said is a couple of really important points. And that is, let's talk about, let's like break down flow for a second. Okay. So flow, um, in your world, you, you are able to grasp it so quickly. And that's the thing that I want to impress upon the people who are listening is Every single one of you who are listening or watching has experienced a flow state. And these are those moments where, um, whether through you know, sports, the action sports example that you just gave, or maybe in a more mainstream sort of day-to-day, -day, you were able to achieve something almost effortless with little awareness or seemingly little awareness. Let me awareness. give you a technical yeah. definition. Great. So <clears throat> technically flow is defined as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. More specifically, it's those moments of rapt attention, total absorption, we get so focused on the task at hand that everything vanishes. Action and awareness will merge. Your sense of self, sense of self-consciousness, all that will disappear. Time will pass strangely, it'll slow down. You'll get that freeze frame effect. Maybe anybody's been in a car crash. Yeah. More frequently, it speeds up and five hours pass by in five minutes. And throughout all aspects of performance, mental and physical, go through the roof. We call it flow. The name was coined by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who was then at the University of Chicago. You taught me how to say that one. <laughs> I can't, I can't Mihai remember. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Got it. Nailed it. First time. <laughs> <laughs> On site. Yeah. Um, uh, he coined the term because he had conducted kind of the largest, uh, at that time, uh, study of optimal psychology ever. Went around the world, tens of thousands of people, everybody you could possibly imagine, like, Navajo sheep herders, Italian grape farmers, neurosurgeons, Wall Street guys, dancers, take you back, talk to everybody and ask them about the times in their life when they felt their best and they performed their best and they all said the same thing, which is, I get into this state and every action, every decision flows seamlessly, perfectly, effortlessly from the last, right? So flow is a phenomenal logical description. It's a fancy way of saying it describes how it makes you feel, right? Mm -hmm. The experience of flow actually is flowy and what's cool about that is if you look, go one more move under the hood, like where's this flowy coming from? Well, what you see, and this is a quick shorthand way to think about flow, is as close to near perfect high speed decision making as we can get. Now it is definitely not perfect decision making. You sure. can make a lot of errors and you've you got to know how to course correct. And yes. I just spent a week with uh, some time with some marine, the marine aviators in Yuma. Uh, Arizona, and their problem is they can get into flow, but they're getting kicked out of it, and they're crashing billion-dollar airplanes. So they like, you know, Scott Schmidt, the skier, used to say, "Flow makes you feel like Superman up until the moment you're not." So as close to near perfect high-speed decision making yeah. as you can get, but you know, gotta have some break on fantasy land there. Okay, so <clears throat> what I think is beautiful about this, your your several books, and we'll get. We'll get to your most recent one in a short bit here, but is that this is available to everyone? So take us there. Yeah. This is not when we're talking about in terms of elite athletes. You know, my experience is with the Olympic soccer team. So these are highfalutin ideas, but every you know the way that you defined it is. What, I love that definition because what it, it it there is a vehicle and an avenue for every person to achieve this, and it is being your best self, near perfect decision making for whatever it is in life that well, you're leaning in. Let's, so let's just speak directly to your audience and, and what they care about, which is creativity yes. for a second. So I'm not gonna do too much in the science. One of the things that happens in flow is five of the most potent neurochemicals the brain can produce flood your system. So stress hormones like cortisol and norepinephrine are flushed out of your system and they're replaced by these positive, feel-good performance-enhancing neurochemicals. These chemicals do lots of different things. One of the things they do is they massively improve creativity. And without getting lost in the science of the definitions, creativity is mostly, almost always, a recombinatory process, right? It's new information comes into the brain, we connect it with an older idea, we create something startling and new. That's a totally yep. shorthand, stupid definition, but it's mechanistically great. it's good. Yeah. Um, these neurochemicals surround that process. So when we're in this state, we take in more information per second. So 
data acquisition goes up, we pay more attention to it, so salience goes up. We find faster and quicker connections between this information and older information. Pattern recognition goes up, and we also find those far-flung disparate connections between ideas, so lateral thinking goes up. So creative breakthroughs massively rise. When we try to quantitate this you know, and measure it, different people have different numbers, but the numbers are huge. Research done all over the place, including stuff we've done with the Flow Genome Project, shows a 400 to 700% boost in creativity while on flow. That's off the charts, huge, wow. right? And we've all had that it, experience, yes, right? It's, it's when, you're, when you've seen a guitar soloist in the middle of a solo and they've lost their mind, and it's like they are one with their instrument, there is no thinking happening, it's just doing, you can see it expressed in their face and the outcomes of the music they're playing, and there's 50,000 million other examples. It's a, it's a coder on a midnight tear, right, where they feel like they're raining ones and zeros in the matrix, right? Yeah. Like, that's creative flow. And it's interesting, as a creative, so one of the funky things about flow, and we'll talk about, you wanted to go with what can people do, so yes. let's go there for a second. Great. What we learned is that flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. There are 20 of them. 10 of them help produce individual flow, right? Like you in a flow state shooting a, yep. a f me writing. Yes. And there's 10 that produce group flow, which is what happens when a team comes together. If you saw the Patriots win the Super Bowl, that fourth quarter comeback, that's a phenomenal you know, version of yeah. group flow. Or if you see like a band come together or yep. an improv troupe come together and suddenly the level of humor or comedy, right, goes through the roof, that's group flow. A great brainstorming session where the ideas are flying around, yeah. that's group flow. There's 10 triggers that lead to individual flow, 10 that lead to group flow. And the first thing to know, the easy thing, like is flow, as you mentioned earlier, it happens when all your attention is focused in the right here, right now. It's yep. total engagement with the present moment, right? So what do these triggers do? They drive attention into the present moment. That's nothing fancier. They're the 20 things that evolution shaped our brain to pay the most attention to. Now, there are probably more triggers, right? Sure. There are a whole categories we haven't looked at. There's stuff we know that we can't go deeper into yet, whatever. But we know of 20. And here's the really cool thing. They're really trainable. So I mentioned this earlier. We did a six-week joint learning project at Google a year and a half ago. We trained up. 50 or 60 engineers in four high-performance basics, which like sleep hygiene and things like that, right? Yeah. Like real basics. basic stuff. <clears throat> Some breathing stuff, mindfulness stuff, and four flow triggers, the use of four flow triggers. And after six weeks, we saw a 35 to 80% increase in the amount of flow in their lives. So this stuff is really, really, really trainable. It's accessible, um, it's so yeah. accessible. And I can give you, if stephencotler.com, my website, yeah. there's, if you sign up for my email newsletter, you will get a free breakdown of how all these triggers work and how to apply them in your life. So like, that's there, yep. for, you can have it as a tool, go. Amazing, so to, um, again, I'm trying to, to stitch, because this is, it, it can be perceived as heady. Like, you know, my first dipping the toe in here with you is like, I love this stuff, I was like, wow, I heard drugs like, you know, norepinephrine, serotonin, I'm trying to keep them all separate, and I think that's one of the things that I want, if we, if you all walk away with anything from this interview, it's that you don't actually have to know anything about that. Yeah, you that. don't have to know any of the science. Yeah, don't, like, don't focus on the science, but everyone has seen or felt someone in that state. And the thing that is the takeaway from this is it's trainable, it's replicable, and it is almost required for you to be at your best. So Not only is it required, so okay. let me just... Yeah, some other studies. So McKinsey did a 10-year study of top executives and, uh, in flow, and they found that top executives in flow are 500% more productive than out of flow, right? And specifically, these are the people who are most called upon to make really hard creative problem-solving decisions to solve so-called wicked problems, right? Non-binary, really complicated solutions where you have to need perspective all around, right? So really deep creative tasks. 500% more productive in flow, 400 to 700% boost in uh, creativity. And we see learning, DARPA, the US Defense Department did a bunch of studies with soldiers. They found soldiers in flow learn 470% faster than normal. Motivation goes through. So these are fundamental skills. And my point is, what I wanted to point out is, you don't get lost in the neuroscience, but you do, not only do you need this stuff to be at your best, but you know, my organization, a lot of other organizations, people are aware of this stuff. It's, it's being rolled out into the work world. And really, after a few years from now, how do you keep 
pace with if if company A is doing all kinds of flow positive stuff and their employees are 500% more productive and company yeah. B isn't you can see how quickly this race is going to get lost so i you know right now it's sort of mandatory for creatives to tap into it i think but in a couple of years 4 or 5 years it's going to be mandatory to keep up yeah. i think is it I'm sure some of this came out from deconstruction. Like, oh my gosh, that was an amazing experience. What, what was it like when you were in that experience and what can you do to get yourself there again? And the way, I'll just, again, using my very simple anecdotal, like when I would have- Chase Jarvis trying to play Dom on TV and failing again. <laughs> <yet>. like, <laughs> when when I, I was just able to sit there and like, what was happening? What were the feelings that were in my body? What was I thinking about? And I would try and through some mental imagery and some relaxation, some breathing, I would try and recreate those in my mind's eye. And I found that the more senses that I could incorporate, like what did the grass smell like when you know you scored the diving head so or something. So you just landed on one of Flo's triggers. You're okay. right there. Keep talking. Okay. No, no. This is. Oh, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll keep talking, and then you can break it down for me. But this is again. This is. Um, accidental or through the very, very basic amount of knowledge, um, <coughs> there were a handful of characteristics that were present in all of those flow states. And you can start to see what are the things, you know, you know relaxation, focus, um, just being in a positive state. It was rarely when I was afraid or angry or anxious or any of those things that I had my best performance. And Today, with you know, thanks to your science, um, I can do a lot more to put myself there, to keep myself there, and I know that if I'm not there, that I probably shouldn't be doing work, and I go to the old Tony Robbins thing, like, you need to have the right state before you can tell yourself a good story, and you need to have the right story before you can tell yourself to do any strategy or tasks. So I focus so much of my time on state instead of trying to do work when I'm in a shitty state. So. Yeah, me. So, but that I means stealing fire, the new book, right? Yeah. We're not there yet, yeah. but that's what you just ended up, that's essentially the central theme of stealing fire, which is there are certain kinds of problems that you really want to solve by changing your state of consciousness. That's the solution, yeah. right? Um, but so let's just back it up yeah. to where you started. Some of the senses. When it, so flow has what's called a deep embodiment trigger, which is a fancy way of saying you're engaging multiple sensory streams at once. Why? Because when you're using, you know, most of us spend most of our lives these days, we're heads on sticks. Like we don't even have bodies, right? We're heads on sticks and we're looking at screens. Yeah. That's right, we're the most disembodied <laughs> generation ever, right? But it turns out like the easiest way to dry flow is engage multiple senses at once. So one of the reasons the action adventure sport athletes got so much flow is these are, they're not only using their five senses, but proprioception, vestibular, so balance and body position in space. Like all of this stuff. The physical, the emotional, the. Drives the attention in and out. And in fact, so if you, when Chick sent me high and a guy named Kevin Rathunde at the University of Utah went looking for like, what are the highest flow places we can find on the planet that are not action adventure sports, right? And what they found is Montessori education. And Montessori education is often called embodied education. Don't just read about that windmill, go out and build one, right? Yeah. You go out and build one, you're engaging your eyes, your hands, your heart, all of it's into it. You pay a lot of attention to it. You also see this, I think, with like startups. Guys start companies. It's a deeply embodied process because you're doing everything, right? You're and then, screwing legs to desks. And, right, and, exactly. And, yeah, like, <laughs> and then you, the company starts to calcify, it gets funded, and suddenly you're not doing all that stuff anymore. And I think one of the reasons you see serial entrepreneurship, like guys who've started companies, they've made a lot of money, they should be, you know, just leave it alone, right? They, no, we're gonna start another one. And it's because, you know, a risk is another flow trigger, so they want the risk to focus his attention, but it's also deeply embodied. You're yeah. fully engaged. And, you know, it drives focus. And you were right with your other one. So you said a certain amount of anxiety. We know, it's often called the golden rule of flow. It's called the challenge skills balance, which is what he's saying, remember, flow follows focus, right? So we pay the most attention to the task at hand to what we're doing when the challenge slightly exceeds our skill set, right? You want to stretch, but not step. If I was saying it emotionally, I'd say flow sits near the midpoint between boredom, not enough information, I'm not paying any attention, and anxiety, whoa, way too much, right? Neurobiologically, norepinephrine, one of those chemicals, right? That's anxiety, and it actually, the higher it goes, it starts to block flow. 
Um, so you have to stay in that sweet spot, which is, you know, mindfulness practices are a great, you know, any kind of breathing, right, where you're down-regulating, calming down your nervous system is a great training tool for flow. That's why when we were at Google, when we work with anybody, we try to lay down a basic breath mindfulness practice of some kind. Yeah. Calm your nervous system down. Get a little less reactive to the present, right? Yeah. That was part of that coaching that we experienced is it was always a relaxation and a centering exercise before visualization. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it just, it, it helped like the uptake. It was almost like you're putting yourself in a position to receive the, the feedback that you were giving, your, your, that you're you know, pumping into your brain. But I want to go to the thing that you started leaning into, which is um, from Rise to now the new book, Stealing Fire, which the subtitle is around um, the Green Berets, uh, Navy Silicon Seals. Valley Navy SEALs, yeah. Maverick scientists are revolutionizing how we live and work. Okay, so part of yeah, why don't you take? Us yeah, there, let right? me let me just take you there because it's it's almost funny. So, you know, Rise comes out, and before Rise came out of the Flow Genome Project, we were working with people, but it was Olympic level athletes, Red Bull athletes, spec ops, right? Really, people with life and death consequences for high performance, and suddenly. It's mainstream. We're on Wall Street. We're in tech firms, and we're you know we're in Main Street. I'm at Morgan Stanley in Columbus, Ohio. You know what I mean? Like it trading just spreads floor, right? exactly. It spreads really wide. And look, I'm going and training up corporate executives in the use of an altered state of consciousness flow, yeah. which you know I graduated high school in 1985. I entered the business world that that was not like that's just not what happened, right? <laughs> like go back to 1985. You want to like walk into a boardroom and just mention creativity or passion, yeah. you'll get laughed out of the room. Forget like yeah. flow, right? Right. So I think I'm doing this crazy edgy shit. Like I'm going to these companies and we're like we're teaching it off and flow. And after we would be done, people would come up to us everywhere we went and say, oh, you know this this flow stuff is really cool. But we met Navy SEALs who had just come back from two-week science Vipassana meditation retreats. Or we would meet whole teams of engineers at Fortune 100 companies that will go unnamed who are microdosing with psychedelics to improve problem solving. We were meeting you know, Wall Street guys zapping their brains with electrodes to kind of knock out their prefrontal cortex and alter their consciousness. Or you know, soccer moms with yoga practices, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so everywhere we went, like we're talking about one particular altered state of consciousness, but it seemed like people were utilizing an entire suite of like state-changing techniques and technologies um, to improve performance. And stealing fire grew out of the question of like, honestly, like what the fuck is going on? Like, yeah. What is happening here? This, this seems crazy. And the, the other thing you need to know that's really important. So. And I'll just do this historically because it's probably the easiest way to do it. Stay Great. away from the science. hundred years ago, William James, who's the first psychologist in America, he teaches at Harvard. He's our, considered the greatest Western philosopher, psychologist, physician, physiologist. He's got the whole package. hundred years ago, he notices that a particular band, so altered states is a big category. You got meditation, dreaming on one end, you know, schizophrenia on the other, and in between are all these other states of consciousness. He notices that what you could talk about is the ecstatic bandwidth. This is flow, meditative states, contemplative states, mystical states like speaking in tongues or trance states, psychedelic states, awe, what all the all the north of happy experiences, what about right? Sexual, sexually mediated states, even technologically mediated states. He says, "Hey, I think these are the same thing. They seem to produce." very similar psychological benefits. They seem to decrease anxiety, they heal trauma, they're very psychologically real, they help us emotionally, and they all seem to enhance performance in the same way, and they all seem to make us feel the same way. And we forget about this. There's a 100-year detour. Freud is interested in pathological problems, doesn't care about psychological possibilities. We take a 100-year detour around these ideas. Where we are today is, it turns out, James was right. And we had accidentally, in trying to map the neuroscience of flow, we had to map a lot of other altered states. And we started, when you look at like what happens in the brain in a flow state and what happens in the brain in awe or in a psychedelic state or in a speaking in tongues experience, they're very similar. They're not 100%, but the knobs and levers in the brain that are being tweaked are the same. So we started to realize that like all these different tribes 
right? Who weren't really talking to each other, right? For most of the 20th century, flow is like the domain of artists and athletes. Meditative states are like seekers and saints. And psychedelic states are hippies and ravers, right? These groups are not talking to each other. They're not friends, they're not hanging out. Yeah. They don't think they're doing the same thing, but it turns out neurobiologically, they're all doing the same things, right? These are all these groups of people, all these top performing organizations, everyone, they're all chasing these same states and they're chasing them for the massive increase in performance we get. Wow. So that's where Stealing Fire came from. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons that I was so excited when you wrote Superman, when you wrote, or Rise. You can call it whatever yeah, you want. I'm good with that. For me, it's Superman, but for you, it's Rise. It'll always be Superman to okay. me. <laughs> um, it, it, to me, that was the first move to the main mainstream stage where I felt like I could talk to people who hadn't, um, who didn't, wouldn't think it was weird because you can you can see that if you are going to jump out of a air balloon. 20 miles from the surface of the earth, that you'd have to have a couple of screws loose and want to do something and, and tap into something that other you know, day-to-day people aren't largely tapping into. And then when you shifted to um, the new book, it to me, that's what, uh, it, it unlocks the conversation at another level. When you really realize that executives at Google and ravers and these high-performance athletes they're all tapping into the same thing. This is a sort of, it's a unifying theory. Jason Silva, and this is in the book, but he it was. He Jason's was, gonna be on the show. We were just talking to him recently, right? It's coming up in the next couple of weeks. We'll have him, he's a great give guy. Him a, yeah. Give good, him a hug for you. Good really, dude. give him a good friend. He was I mean, he's featured in Stealing Fire, right? We tell his story. Um, and one of the things he, he talks about, because obviously Jason talks a lot about altered states of consciousness, he talks about these states as um, a common language that we all speak. He, right, we all speak, we don't know we speak this language, but we all actually speak, it's a language, he, his phrase was brilliant, it was a language without words that we all share. Was his, how, that was the Jasonism, and it was really a good one. That's beautiful. So, it, to me, this was, this is the, we're on the cusp of the next um, era of greatness in this world. You've been living in it for a long time, but there, it's now more accessible than ever before. We're realizing we're speaking a common language. Um, what you guys did was quantify the experience that we're all chasing. We're are all ch- chasing some sort of altered state, um, whether that's through alcohol, through drugs, through meditation, through big work stuff. And you guys put a number to that? Yeah, we did. So, we, <laughs> I know, crazy, but... Uh, uh, when we started seeing this, and it, I, so I wrote Stealing Fire with my partner, Jamie Wheel. When I say we, I'm not sure. trying to be. <laughs> <laughs> the royal we? The royal we, yeah. <laughs> no, me and my partner, Jamie Wheel, on the Flow Genome Project. When, when we started seeing this all over the place, we wanted to quantify it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what are we Why, really looking at? Is this cares? really like, the book is about a revolutionizing, how, like revolution is a big word, right? Yeah. Like, do, do you know. So I felt like we had to earn it. And this is like, you know, as I said, you, you said I was a journalist. I am, like, and I'm highly skeptical of, yeah. of everything. I like to see numbers and studies and science. And so what we did was we wanted to calculate the altered state economy. How much money do we spend globally trying to shift our consciousness, right? What really trying, when I say shift our consciousness, what all these, share, these, there are common characteristics that all these states, whether it's awe or meditative states, are, we see four things. They, they're selfless states, so your sense of self disappears. Timeless states, your sense of time. They're effortless states, as you pointed out earlier, right? You're propelled by a force that's greater than you. Motivation goes through the roof, intrinsic yep. motivation goes up. And they're information-rich states. All the brain's information processing yep. machinery goes through the roof, so heightened insight, information, creative, right? So chasing those states and, and, and actually ecstasis. I talk about the ecstatic bandwidth. That's actually, it's a Greek word, ecstasis. It means to stand outside yourself and be filled with divine information. So it's literally we, these states, right, are states where we're outside of our normal waking consciousness and we're tapped into greater access to information. So we wanted to quantify how much money do we spend, even, forget even the tapping into greater, just trying to shut off the self, right? Like yeah. change that channel. Yeah, even if it's yeah, drinking. Even, even a, if it's drinking, yeah. even if it's nicotine, you know, whatever we use. And we looked at illicit chemicals and illicit substances. We looked at all the psychopharmaceuticals, from, you know, Adelin, Ritterol, Sleep Aid, you take your pick. We also looked at kind of the self-help stuff, not the... Um, 
not the stuff that was at skills acquisition. That's a different thing. But like Tony Robbins released The Giant Within seminars where he's trying to change your state of consciousness and help yep. me feel better kind of stuff. We looked at recreation, action adventures, which we've talked about. Gambling produces a lot of the, you know, the shifts our consciousness in the way certain yeah. parts of media, social media, IMAX, whatever. We added it all together. We were as conservative as possible. Um, and in places, so, you know, there are a lot of places we couldn't even get world numbers. We just took U.S. numbers and just added it in. So, like, this number is off. It's small, but it's $4 trillion a year. So it's one-sixteenth of the global economy. It's greater than the GDP of India or Russia or Britain that we are spending trying to change the channel on consciousness. That is such a huge, <laughs> mind-blowing. Like, I, Jamie kept, like, because I worked the number the first time, and Jamie, for the next year and a half that we were writing the book, like every month and a half, he would call me up and be like, okay, man, we got to get really serious about the number for the alternate economy. Like, I'm like, Jamie, no, I, like, I, I did worked, math, I, I did yeah. the math, like, I've done, and, and I would redo the math, like, every two months, and I would show it to me, you know, finally I actually made him do the math with me, and he was yeah. like, okay, I'm done. And we've got, like, if you go to the Flow Genome Project website, there's a PDF breakdown. It's in the book, too, but I think there's a free one up on our website that breaks down how we did it and where the categories are. Um, but it's an enormous... Uh, it's an enormous sum of money, and it's interesting. We were talking about this earlier. Um, so Ronald K. Siegel at, at UCLA, among a lot of other people, Oliver Sacks, a lot of other thinkers, have said the urge to alter our consciousness, to shift state, to get out of our heads, is a fun. The urge for intoxication is what they call it. Is a fundamental evolutionary driver. It is as powerful. They call it a fourth evolutionary drive. So it's as powerful as our search for sex and sustenance and shelter, and the reason. Really, like, why, you know, why would, obviously, why would, and, and you see it, it, so the interesting thing is it's everywhere. It's not just humans. It's every, most mammals have found a way to shift their consciousness. Dolphins will chew pufferfish to release the nerve toxin, and it will get high on that. Elephants will drink fermented bog water, right, like fruit drops into a pond. They will get drunk on that. Iboga, the ibogaine, really powerful psychedelic baboons use that. Jaguars use ayahuasca, which has DMT in it, right? So everywhere you look, even kids, right? Kids will hyperventilate. Dizzy. Or they, they get dizzy. They, they, they roll will, down right, hills. They'll spin in circles. They'll roll yes. down hills. Exactly. They will do anything they can. And the question was why, right? I mean, like, you know, cats messed up on catnip will, like, get hit by cars a lot more easy, right? <laughs> like, birds chew marijuana seeds, and they will fly into windows. This is not always good. Yeah. So the question has been for a really long time, what the hell is going on? Why are we doing this, right? alcohol, right? Very damaging to our society, but we use it all the time. And the reason is every species on the planet gets stuck in ruts. And you need, they call it a depatterning inst instrument, which is a fancy way of saying a way to shift your perspective and do something different than whatever you've done. Yeah. So the point is, like, these non-ordinary states of consciousness, they're the very tool evolution gave us, us to solve certain kinds of creative problems, yeah. right? Like, that's the point. That's why we access these states, that's what they're here for. And so, in a sense, what we measured, right, is it's the first time I think anybody's put a number on it, is we measured a fundamental evolutionary driver. Like, this is how important monetarily yeah. this is to us. It's $4 trillion a year. And, again, very conservative number, so it's probably higher, but... Like, I think that's kind of neat that, you know, it wasn't my intent, but that's where we ended up. Well, I think that what's fascinating is that we're <clears throat> able to put context around this. As a, it's a pretty heavy concept that, as, that our species is fundamentally given tools to change their states of consciousness, to get out, to use your word, get out of rust, to change thinking that might be patterned. And remember, patterned thinking is, is good on one way because you can establish a repetition and some habits, replicable yeah. habits, but it's also, it it uh, undermines perhaps evolution. If you're just stuck looking yeah, it for- It undermines innovation for yeah, sure. Yeah, innovation. Right. If you're just stuck looking for the woolly mammoth in one place, right? and the woolly mammoth has moved on, you're gonna die. So you need to travel to look for the woolly mammoth. That not, that's not the most scientific example I'm gonna- Have spear will travel. <laughs> yeah. but. To me, this is a powerful thing that uh, I'm hoping unlocks the minds and hearts of the people who are listening or watching. And it's not just about only action sports figures, and it's not just about uh, Burning Man raves. It is literally a biological connection, and it's a mechanism. We have been given the ability to do this, 
And more importantly, this is the key point, if we do it responsibly, it can create amazing results. Responsibly is really, really key, right? Like, this is not the first time in history somebody has said, look, drugs are good. It's a consciousness, <laughs> this could really help perform, right? Like, this goes horribly wrong pretty much every time we try. And it doesn't even yeah. matter, like the 60s, you know, Kesey sneaks a little bit of LSD out of a Stanford research lab and all sorts of tie-dyed hell breaks loose. Yeah. In the 70s, you know, people start realizing that sex, sex is a, you know, sexual liberation first based on the pill and whatever, but it's a way to alter your consciousness. And what is the end result at the end of the sexual revolution? Massive spiking rates of marital dissatisfaction and divorce. Rave culture, right? They discover MDMA and it starts out and we're going to heal the world and unite the world and look at Michael Osnick and it ends up <laughs> with like, you know, ER visits and tabloid fodder yeah. and like this yeah. goes wrong. Yeah. What we're trying to say is there's a middle path between these extremes because what happens is it goes wrong. There's a top-down clampdown. Yep. You go like we dated we in Stealing Fire. We started in the Greeks and we walk you through all the times this has happened before in history and what you see is excess and ideas start leaking out and change really starts happening. And then you see top-down control because hedonism is a real issue. These things go wrong and people can use these leaders, yeah. right, can use these states. I mean, what goes on in a terrorist training camp? What goes on in a cult? They are shifting your state of consciousness and they are, you know, telling you it means something, yeah. right? With the Flow Genome Project um, and in Stealing Fire, we, we don't ever let anybody tell you. If somebody starts making meaning for you, this, this state of consciousness must mean this, it's a good sign that it's going in the wrong direction. I mean... Hitler, the Nuremberg rallies were yeah. phenomenal. I mean, he literally, like we documented in this book, but he literally stole state-changing technology. He borrowed cheerleading stuff from American college cheerleaders because he saw it was effective here. And like, it's really crazy, but it was, the Nuremberg rallies were specifically designed to shift consciousness, right? And these, you get, you know, group flow is what happens on a small scale. Communitas is the term for when it happens on a larger scale. And you see it, can incite political movements and can be, it can go wrong, yeah. really can go wrong. These are not, this is not just self-help, it's all gonna be <laughs> right. good. This is, these are powerful, powerful technologies applying with very addictive states of consciousness. You have to be very mature, but our argument is, hey, for the very first time, there's a bunch of neuroscience. We understand mechanism. We understand where this stuff is coming from, how it's coming. We even know there are four ways these states tend to go wrong. Like we, like we've yeah. got a map of the, like these are the normal. <laughs> don't go here. We don't go here, here, <laughs> here. Like every uh, people have all the time, right? Like the, like we're getting to that point. So like our only hope is, hey, there can be a middle path, and you know what we're advocating for in the book is an, a giant open source research project. So maybe if the top down control does come things are disseminated enough that we can retain this knowledge and build on it. Because, you know, you look at flow, for example, that's 100, what, we're, what I'm talking about is, you know, there's 150 years worth of really smart people thinking hard about the science because we could talk about this stuff. It wasn't as complicated as psychedelics or some meditation or some of these other things. It was neutral, at least. It didn't have a deity attached or a drug attached. Um, so that's where the middle path has gotten us. These same things, right? We're starting to get the knowledge, right? Last year, for the very first time, for example, we took fMRI pictures of what is your brain like on LSD. And so, like, you know, for years we've talked about like mind expansion. Mm -hmm. Turns out, like, you're actually right. Like, when we look at the pictures, we see huge, far-flung networks of the brain are talking to them, each other on LSD, which is what you see in most of these states. But you know, suddenly there's a little bit of a middle path. There's a, and maybe we won't get so horribly lost this time. No, no. So this is what you know. Maybe we can try. This is. Uh, I might be asking for too much here, but in a in as much research as you have, and in a sh show that's as short as this one relative to 30 years of your research, let's try and be a little bit tactical for a second. For sure. And and talk about what are some of the things that are useful for the community that would be paying attention to this show, here on Creative Live or in a business or entrepreneurial concept, yeah, creati creative yeah. concept. Like let's, what are some of these things that, to use your words, that are more down the middle that can without, or maybe just brushing up against the taboo without going fully into it, that can help? Well, tactically. So let's just start with like some flow fundamentals, right? Okay. Like. When I go into an organization, train them up in flow, the first thing I do, the very first, so flow, 
can only have when all of our attention is focused in the right here, right now. Um, and we've learned that the ideal amount of time to spend focused is minimum 90 minutes. 120 minutes is usually better. So if you can't put a sign on your door that says, fuck off, I'm flowing, and be left alone, no cell phone, no messages, no interruptions, complete focus, you're lost. Like you cannot even get into this race. It's a, it's a basic, it's just yeah, like- to get in the door. You gotta get in the door, you gotta do that. You, you also, I believe, need some kind of a mindfulness practice. You know, if you look at 21st century normal, right, psychologically is tired and wired and chronically stressed. And if you look under the hood of that chronically stressed, what you see neurobiologically is most of us are essentially living on the edge of a fight or flight response all the time. Right, that's what with, the, with um, like cortisol, cortisol, yeah. norepinephrine, brainwaves, and an agitated beta. A lot of activity in the prefrontal cortex. It's basically the edge of a fight or flight response. And the fight or flight response was meant to be like this really brief. Like there's a tiger, let me run away. Yeah. Okay, out of it, and the body down regulates. We don't come out of it anymore. Um, so mindfulness. Mind, is you you need you need to calm it down. So much of flow, and you pointed it out earlier, is negotiating with fear. You're gonna to have to use that fear, right? Because risk, right? one of the other things you're going to want to start doing if you want more flow in your life is you're gonna actually have to start to practice taking risks, right? If it doesn't have to be physical, right? You creative risks, yeah. social risks, intellectual risks, take your pick, emotional risks, yeah. right? But you have to take more risks. It's a focusing, it's a focusing process, drives attention. You need to train that on a regular basis. You also need a mindfulness, a breath practice. We like box breathing, which is what the Navy SEALs use, and it's a very simple, and what I like about it is, I don't know if you- I'm not so, familiar with box all right, breathing. I'll call box breathing, because there's, you inhale for five seconds, one side of the box, yep. hold your breath for five seconds, second side of the box, exhale for five seconds, hold your breath with the air out of your lungs for five seconds, then you do six, then you do seven, and, and you go up to about 10. And what you'll find is that a couple things happen. One is there's so much going on that people who cannot meditate at all at, and who hate it, you can log 10 minutes without even noticing. If there's so much going on. The other thing that's going on is when you exhale all the air from your lungs and hold your breath, you will automatically induce a fight or flight response. After about seven seconds, so I, if I, when I get up to seven second sides and I exhale all the air out, I got no more air. Your brain goes, holy crap, panic, right? So you have to focus through that panic response, use the heightened norepinephrine and cortisol as focusing drugs, which is what they're meant for, and calm down. So what ends up happening over time is not only is it a meditation practice and you start gaining benefits from that, we talk about what those are, it down-regulates your nervous system, right? So you become less reactive and you, there's, there's more space to maneuver. Those are really kind of fundamental basics that are, you know, really, you also, like deep embodiment, we talked about, you have to move your body for this stuff. Yeah. Have an exercise, I mean, this, these are just, I'm this, giving you yeah, high-performance basics, but you want really practical yeah, basics. Yeah, this stuff. is exactly what I want. And, and you know, I have a, uh, the folks at home know this, uh, that I have a practice of, 10 habits that I do every day, and one of them is move my body. And I move my body for health, but I also move my state body change. because it changes my state. I, I am so aware of my ability to be a better husband, friend, leader, um, partner, like all of these things when I have exercise as a piece of the pie. It's not the whole pie, no, but it's a critical so piece. So what we see, in, one of the things that happens neurobiologically in flow is activity in the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that's right back here that governs a lot of your higher cognitive functions, shuts down, becomes really quiet. The technical term is transient, temporary, hypofrontality. Hypo is the opposite Thank of hyper. Thank you for not saying that ever again. I will <laughs> <I'll> never. <laughs> but but the point I'm making is you can get that with a 20 minute walk, 25 minute walk. Like it's exercise-induced, trans the words I won't say yeah. again, right? But um, <laughs> Cthulhu, the thing that's so horrible, whose yeah. name we shall not speak. Yes. Um, but, I mean, a 20-minute walk will start to quiet this down, right? We, we did some work with a, this really cool company in Chicago, Sterling Partners, and they recently, in their office, they built a, like a walking track around their office so employees can get up on their cell phone and pace and walk, but also they could walk around and you know, put themselves into this state, just turn down the activity, quiet it down a little bit, and you know, A, that resets the nervous mm -hmm. system, and B, it, you know, get heightened creativity, heightened cooperation, all this, all the good stuff. So really practical, simple stuff. Um, 
that if you're not, you know, a lot of high performers are already doing this stuff, but if you're not doing these things, you need those things to get in, get in the race a little bit. Yeah. The other thing, and I'm sorry to... No, this is like, you're listing them, this is what I want. Yeah, what, is, Matt's over here taking notes. He's literally on his phone taking notes. Cool. All right, so the, the, the big thing is you have to understand that they're the same thing. So let me give you an, an example. Um, we talked about how these states decrease anxiety. They help us psychologically. The best example is PTSD, right, which is the most extreme anxiety disorder you could possibly imagine. So back in early 2000s, they discovered, uh, this was work by a psychologist named Michael Mithahofer, discovered that they were working with soldiers with PTSD from Iraq and Afghanistan and uh, victims of child abuse and sexual abuse. And they found that one to three MDMA therapy sessions. So they give you MDMA, right, the chemical ecstasy, ecstasy and it, then it's talk therapy, right? If you work with a psychologist and that sort of thing, one to three uh, sessions of psychedelic therapy were enough to produce significant or total removal of PTSD symptoms. So they redid that study and they replaced the MDMA. They did this at Camp Pendleton with over a thousand soldiers. They replaced it with surfing as a trigger for flow. Surfing is a packed with flows. I said flow has 20 triggers. Surfing is an activity that's packed with them. So they used surfing and talk therapy, right? They'd 10 people surfing, put them into flow, bring them back on the beach and have a group talk therapy session. They got the exact same results the MDMA study got in five weeks of surfing. I think they were surfing three times a week and doing this therapy session. So, and it's the same protocol, except they use surfing and flow instead of MDMA. Then last year, the Defense Department redid the same protocol. This time they used meditation. And they found that four weeks of mantra-based meditation, 20 minutes a day, was enough to produce the exact similar results, a little, a little lesser. So the point I'm making is there's an on-ramp for anybody. Right, that's what this information is giving us. Like, if and it depends on a couple of things, right? What are your risk tolerances, yeah. right? If you have really high risk tolerances and you don't mind seeking out an illegal substance or you know that sort of signing up for a government trial at this point, you can go the MDMA route. Though the FDA, you know, we're now, I think it's a phase three clinical trial, so about to become mainstream treatment with MDMA for uh, PTSD. PTSD, but even cooler, they started phase one trials for normal anxiety and depression because the results were so strong with PTSD, yeah. they're like, okay, we can treat normal anxiety and depression, which, like, I don't know if you know the numbers, but one out of eight of us is, one out of four of us is on some kind of psychiatric med, maybe that's sleep aids or antidepressants or anti-anxiety, one out of four of us, wow. right? Um, we're really sort of lost, and SSRIs are not a particularly interesting intervention. Yeah. But the big point is like, you know, there are choices. You could, the, once we know that like all these things take us to the same place, yeah. you can say, well, what's my risk tolerance? You know, maybe surfing is your thing, maybe that's how you're wired. Some people, if I were to give you these offers, they would look at meditation and say, that's the scariest one, I don't want, I don't want, <laughs> right? right? MDMA, some, no problem. I'm uh, the MDMA, I'm yeah. happy to learn to surf, but I am not gonna <laughs> meditate, right? Like right. it's really funny depending on who you talk to. Um, but that's what we're getting is we can compare, we can contrast, we can figure out what's right for me and we can kind of go in these directions now. Yeah, that's, you know, Tim Ferriss, he, he's been on the show a number of times, good friend. He studied, in his most recent book, Tools of Titans, he studied 200 people, high performers, world-class, you know, billionaires. And the number one most common thread, the most popular common thread of all of them was a mindfulness practice of some sort. I think it's really, I, I, I think it's, so another thing, just you were, we're getting really practical. So you have to also have an active recovery practice at the end of your day. So you have to calm down actively, right? So that's sleep hygiene, but at the end of my day, I go into an infrared sauna for 50 minutes and do, I do A, I do breath work. I do 25 minutes of breath work, which is really important for all the reasons we've done. The other thing I do is, so it turns out, we, I was gonna say this in the beginning, if you're talking about flow, creativity itself is a flow trigger. And what that is a fancy, the pattern recognition, when you link ideas together, yeah. there's a neurochemical release that releases dopamine, which is a focusing chemical. And we've all had this experience, right? If you've done a crossword puzzle, you get an answer, right? you get that little rush of pleasure, mm -hmm. and it's dopamine, it's pattern recognition in the brain. So that drives focus, so creativity actually spirals. Um, flow produces heightened creativity, heightened creativity produces more flow, that sort of thing. But if you're going to have pattern recognition, you need to feed the pattern recognition system information. Like it, you can't, 
And most of us today, we specialize. That's what we're, we drill down in our thing. So the more you specialize, the less fodder you get. So I like to have people read 25 to 50 pages a day outside their discipline. Usually nonfiction that works better than fiction, I've found, um, and outside your discipline. And so I go into a sauna for 50 minutes and I do 25 minutes of breath work and 25, I can read about, you know, a page, page and a half at, you know, 25 to 35 pages. So I'm stocking up my pattern recognition system. So the next day, it's filled up with stuff that can, like, create those links and give me that dopamine and drive me into flow. Because if you're not feeding the system, it has no raw materials to work with. Wow. And that, the way that I talk about that in way more plain language is creates, <laughs> no, no, but I'm, I'm, I want to continue to bridge that gap for anyone who's like intimidated by the, it's just that creativity creates creativity. You're totally right. And, and you think that's simpler, yeah. using the word three times in a row, right? That's simpler than pattern recognition. Oh, creativity creates creativity. Okay. I see. Fair enough. All right. The finger pointing at the moon. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. So congratulations on the book. Very, very meaningful. Um, what are you working on next? Like, what's the next thing? You know, you're talking about corporate stuff, and you're you're training Navy SEALs, and you got military stuff going on, and like, what what, what am I doing for Stephen? Yeah. Um, uh, believe it or not, I sh- I'm, I'm writing a novel, first novel in 19 years. A novel. But I uh, haven't written one in a long time. But I, you know, I've done a couple of books with Peter Diamandis. I did a co- I've done a bunch of nonfiction. Yes. And I just. I wanted to stretch my creativity muscles. I wanted to stretch my, let's play with language, let's not get out, a little outside. You know, I, I spent a long time being writing inside of boxes, which is wonderful. I love limits. I think limits are really important for heightening creativity, but I needed to like, and I'm, I, I'm gonna try to do it as, like I wanted to see if I can get a first draft in three, four months, um, which is, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, it's really fun. Um, I just wanted to, you know, sort of feed my soul for a little bit. Um, I needed to do something for me, so yeah, that, I'm, I'm, I'm actually writing a novel. You're living the living, practicing what you preach, and trying to ski as much as possible. <laughs> Honestly, well, who doesn't want to ski? I, I this is aside for the folks at home, like earmuffs. I got a day of heli skiing in about two weeks ago. Shut the front thigh, door. Thigh deep, blue bird blowers. Where were you? It was unbelievable. North Cascades. <sighs> it was. So joyful, and I think about all my friends who chase great snow like you and I have. I was just lives. in Squaw past few days. I... So much snow. So much snow. So you're taking care of yourself. Yeah. Um, is there? It, it, let me just ask. I just I, I like to throw a couple of curveballs, a little speed Hit run me. here. What's something that if you told someone something about yourself, they would be surprised to know that that was true? Like. Wow, I would never have thought that about Well, you. okay, let's p- start where we started. I was a professional magician. From eight, My brother came home, made that ball vanish. Uh-huh. I was pissed. I figured out how to make that ball vanish, too. Um, <laughs> absolutely, and that's I made my living that way. I started working in ground-run restaurant, doing birthday parties, did bar mitzvahs. Don't think I ever did a wedding, but I from like 11 to 17, um, bought a car in cash when I was 16 <laughs> years old with magic money. Yep. So did I, I yeah, That's did that. Amazing. Um, wow. Not a lot of people know that. How about uh, that you have run a pet rescue? And we still do. My wife and I run Rancho de Chihuahua. It is, um, we do, so we work in the second poorest county in America uh, with the highest incidence of animal cruelty. Um, and we do hospice care and special needs care for small dogs. So the most, mostly Chihuahuas, we most euthanized breed in America. So we sort of are like a band-aid on hell. We want to work on the very far front lines of altruism. I said that I was interested in, you know, how people do the impossible, and I was interested also in kind of the extremes of altruism. And I think animal rescue, people like helping people. They don't see animals as much, and they don't yeah. see plants as much. So I like to, you know, I like to do that. Uh, working on Equilibrium, which is a big conference at Squaw, trying to get technologists and environmentalists together in the same room. Wow. Um, this is, you know, in August to, again, solve, help animals. So like at a small level, and I'm doing it at a bigger level with a, an amazing team at Squaw. You'll have to come for that. Yeah, all I need is an invite. You're the invited, done. Wow. Noted, just, you heard him say it here, if he doesn't send me something, no, I it. can just play this video. Remember, you, you invited me. <laughs> um, you saw it here first. Thank you so much no, for coming you. on the show. Uh, the book is Stealing Fire. We'll look, would you have a title for your next novel yet? 
Last Tango in Cyberspace. <laughs> Last Tango in Cyberspace. You got a preview. This is Mr. Stephen Kotler. I'm Chase. Thanks so much. How do they get a hold of you? What's the best way to follow you in the world? <clears throat> StephenKotler.com is me. StealingFireBook.com is that book. And FlowGenomeProject.com. And if you want a tool, right, uh, if you go there, there's a free flow profile. It's now the largest study ever run in Optimal Psych. Like 70 or 80,000 people have taken it. But it's a tradeology. It says if you're this kind of person, you're likely to find flow in these directions. Basically, there are a bunch of triggers, right, we talked about. This is just yep. an easy way. You don't have to know too much. You can just point in that direction. So flowgenomeproject.com. Wow. And the rise of Superman, there's all kinds of videos that Stephen and I and yeah. some friends made that are really worth your time. They're short five to ten minute videos that extrapolate and explain a little bit more about uh, a little more on a chemical level what's going on, how to get yourself in those states. It's a great one that you did on creativity. Yeah, I'm, I'm proud of that. I think it was, in a, um, it was a really fun project to be a part of. We got to be, you know, run around with some of our other action sports friends too. So thanks. Thanks for making that. You've been making a bunch of cool stuff. I'm grateful to call well, my friend. I got it back at you. Thank you for what you do because you're putting a lot of great stuff into the world and I appreciate thanks. it. We at Creative Live are very lucky to have you on the show. Thanks, bud. Thank you. Until next week, I'm Chase. This is Steven. Next time. All right, that about wraps it up. But before I let you go, I want to say, A, a huge thank you. B, let you know how to find me. I'm basically at Chase Jarvis all over the internet, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I'm very active on Snapchat. You guys should check it. If that's a platform that you enjoy, uh, check me out there, as well as all the other ones. It's a super important ask for you to share this. Also, uh, subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, and or Stitcher. And most definitely, if you're willing to put in a little bit of extra juice, please leave a review on iTunes. That helps make our podcast more visible. Last place that you can check it out and, and get some additional value is in my newsletter, which is chasejarvis.com slash VIP. That is where I put content out before it hits my social platforms. So that's sort of the insider track. Leave comments all over the internet for me. I will track them down and respond as best I can. And uh, again, huge thank you for listening to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to the next episode already. I hope you'll join me next time.